Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. WABE in Atlanta. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, in just a moment, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis joins me with several high-profile cases to prosecute. Willis will talk about those that she can give us information on. Also, later in the program, what is the impact of the Delta variant on Georgia's economy? Will it be mild or severe? Well, from Georgia State University's Economic Forecasting Center, Rajiv Dewan lays out his prediction and why. Those conversations all come up in just a moment. But first this, at the time of this broadcast, the Atlanta City Council is still listening to recorded public comment regarding, yes, what should happen should they approve a new public training facility for police and fire departments fire officials. Now, the full council meeting is being carried over from a very long day yesterday due to 17 hours of public comments. More than a thousand comments were recorded from the community. This is a controversial $90 million training center, which will be located on about 85 acres of city-owned forest land in unincorporated DeKalb County. Now, there are supporters and opponents of the plan, including opposition from some neighborhood and environmental groups. Sandra McMullen Bennett was among more than a thousand Atlantans who voiced opposition or support for the plan. We don't need to pave paradise and put in another parking lot, or in this case, even worse, a parking lot with guns, assault rifles, machine guns, bombs, helicopters, noise. As for Michael Parrish, he identified himself as an Atlanta police officer. The new public safety training facility will help boost the morale, increase our recruitment efforts, and also retain our current officers. Please do not delay this any further. We make public safety a priority and vote yes on the Bible site that can accommodate both the training needs of Atlanta police and also Atlanta fire. Now, WABE's Lisa Hagan will have an update during All Things Considered later today, hosted by Jim Burris. And welcome back, Jimmy. In other news, a federal judge says Georgia needs to make it easier for third party candidates to get on the ballot in elections for the state and legislature and for the state legislature and Congress. So Judge Lee Mart May said Georgia's ballot access law for congressional and legislative elections is unconstitutional. She ordered the secretary of state to allow third party candidates like libertarians or Democratic socialists to be added to the ballot if they get signatures from just one percent of eligible voters. Georgia law set the threshold at 5%, and since it was enacted, not a single third-party candidate has ever qualified to run for U.S. House. The judge said that 1% threshold she ordered would still prevent ballot crowding and frivolous candidates. And finally, don't blame me, I'm just a messenger, but the CDC has now added Jamaica to its list of places you all might want to consider be- reconsider because they have a high number of corona 
virus cases. So don't get mad at me. Just give me the information. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. When Fonnie Willis beat longtime Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard in a runoff election last summer, here's what she told me right here on Closer Look. We are not going to be an office that brags about being able to charge people in 45 minutes, as my um, predecessor in the last DA did. We are going to be an office that always seeks justice with compassion and treats everyone that we touch with dignity, whether that is a victim, a witness, or a charged person. Um, and anyone who cannot abide by that should probably look for new employment. Hmm. Officially taken over in January of this year, Willis has several high-profile cases, and she joins me now with what she can on the update on those cases and some other issues to talk about. D.A. Willis, welcome back to the program. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure to be back. We really waited too long. We? You've been busy. (laughs) Um, We have a lot to cover here, but I want to begin with this because, of course, we're all still dealing with the pandemic. How has the DA's office been affected in trying to still do not only your day-to-day operations and what you all are supposed to do, either investigating or trying to get movement on cases overall? How would you assess the, the backlog in your office? Um. The pandemic has really uh, wreaked havoc on the district attorney's office is what I would say. We are dealing with an historic backlog um, of about 12,000 unindicted cases. Many of those cases, honestly, are from my predecessor before the pandemic even started. I call those the um, 2016 to 2019 cases. But in that time period that it certainly is no fault of my predecessor, where the grand jury was not up and running, we collected about 7,000 cases. And so when you take that 7,000 on top of the 4,000 that was left that had not been dealt with, and then add on the fact that crime, and I believe in part because of COVID, is certainly on the rise in some of the most dangerous types of crimes. Um, We are really taking a lot of hits because of the pandemic, but we're fighting through those hits. I want to be clear and make sure everyone heard you, because I think my ears heard you. 12,000 cases, you're saying you inherited about 4,000, you collected about 7,000, and you still had what's, I guess, more that were added during the pandemic. So you're looking at 12,000 unindicted cases, D.A. Willis. Absolutely. We're looking at 12,000 unindicted cases. And so you picked up a real important point. 
That has nothing to do with the cases that are indicted and we are currently processing through the system. And so the pandemic has hurt us. I mean, the reality is without the pandemic, I think I would have inherited an, an office that brought me some backlog cases, but the pandemic added to that already staggering number, another seven to 8,000 cases. And so, yes, when I say 12,000, you heard me correctly. How do you begin to maneuver through all of that? And I'm assuming they are divided based on the type of charges. Where do you begin? Um, where we're beginning is with the most serious. Um, we're actually in a crisis where because in Georgia we have a 90-day rule, which means if someone is in jail for 90 days, they will automatically get out, which I have no problem with that rule. The problem is you had so many cases not getting out in that 90 days and the clock started for everyone at the same time. And so we were talking about, you know, well in close to 200 homicides um, and homicide defendants. You're talking about some rapes and some child molestations. So, I mean, I've had to do a lot of different strategies. One, we are hiring like crazy to deal with the backlog. And luckily, there's been a lot of interest in my office. And so we've been able to bring some real talent to the office. Um, two, I created what I call the murder team. And we have Murder Mondays around here where we really just focus on indicting homicides on Mondays, every Monday. Um, and we're talking about on a typical Monday, I'm going to see anywhere from 15 to 30 murder defendants indicted because we're working on them. And then in general, we've just increased the staff. And so we're, we're hitting it from all angles. But quite frankly, we're drowning still. Hmm. Jay Willis, and you said some of these go back to 2016, these unindicted cases. And so that I can't blame on the pandemic. And so I'm real honest that when we got here, there were cases going from 2016 to 2019 that we know have absolutely nothing to do with COVID. And when I say cases, I'm talking about 4,000 cases that needed to be evaluated. And so because a case was brought to you, the police, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be indicted because mm -hmm. we may have to evaluate it and dismiss it or evaluate it and send it to diversion. But certainly those 4,000 cases all deserve to be looked at. And so, yes, we have those that are part of the 12,000. You mentioned you are in a hiring frenzy. How many more investigators, DAs, prosecutors, what do you need that you think would be sufficient enough to start making an impact and getting these cases either indicted or dismissed or what have you? So we are actually, it's interesting you ask that, we're actually going to the county commission as soon as September the 15th, and I'm asking for an additional 55 employees. And that is spread um, pretty much heavy at the top with lawyers, maybe 20 or so lawyers, about 15 investigators, and then the support staff to back that up. We were given an additional 74 positions for a temporary amount of time due to uh, ORCA and the federal funding. Mm -hmm. But quite frankly, when you're dealing with those kinds of numbers, you know, we appreciate it. We are certainly hiring them. I have hired, you know, two thirds of those people already, and I did so within 45 days. Um, but we need more. And that is just the reality to get this job done. The Atlanta Police Department is investigating and are already dealing with more than 100 homicides already from this year. Last year was 92. So you do subscribe to the theory that not just in Fulton or Georgia, but overall throughout the nation, there are so many optics related to the pandemic as factors in the spike in crime, violent crime throughout the nation. And of course, right here in Fulton County. Do you subscribe to that? 
Oh, no, I think absolutely that we are seeing something based on COVID that is causing a spike in crime. And what I need your viewers to appreciate is Atlanta is one of 15 cities for me. And so, yes, Atlanta is the largest city, but it is only one of 15. And so I am seeing increases in most all of my cities. You know, sometimes that means I talk to the chief of South Fulton two hours before I talk to you. And so his number is at 17 this year today, where it was at 15 last year. Well, that may not sound like that many, except that's two lives, mm -hmm. you know? And in Atlanta, we're at a hundred percent increase on homicides. I expect as a county to hit 200 murders this year and probably to surpass that. Those are not numbers that I wanna brag about. And that's going, top of last year and the year before and all of the cases that have been languishing. When I've had this conversation and goodness, I've had a lot of conversations about the crime here and not just in, in Fulton and Atlanta, but throughout the state. And everyone has said it's going to take a holistic approach, but then there are also some blaming other departments. Well, individuals are getting out too soon. Prosecutions aren't happening, happening fast enough, you know, depending on whom you ask. How do you see what role should you all be playing? You all are there to oh. prosecute oh, and, to, and fair too. you, you know. I, I do think that we have to have innovative approaches. And so one thing that I have done is I've brought a pre-indictment diversion program to Fulton County. I have a great young lady that I've hired that started that program for the city of South Fulton. And when I sat as the chief judge, she ran and initiated that program. I stole her from South Fulton and brought her to Fulton County. Um, her name is Miss Epiphany Henry. And so there are a bunch of cases we are diverting so that people can go on with their lives and have opportunities after they pay back to their debt to society without getting that scarlet letter of an indictment or certainly a conviction. So that is a creative mechanism. Um, another thing that we've done is we've now made it. So we went to the Superior Court judges and said, you know, people shouldn't have to be indicted for you to accept them into these accountability courts, whether that's mental health court or drug court. And surprisingly, the Superior Court judges said we had never thought of that. We love that. Let's do it. And so we're diverting people in that way and not having to indict them. But let's also tell you this. I'm taking a very hard approach against violent crime. And I've thrown a lot of resources in terms of lawyers and investigators at what I see to be a growing gang problem in our county that's causing violence. And so I tell people the two are not mutually exclusive. Being tough on crime and having programs that help people that shouldn't really be caught up in the system, those two things work together. And we must have both of them to be successful. Meanwhile, we know that you have some very high-profile cases. Tragically, the killing of eight-year-old Sakura Turner from last summer. We know that there was a 37-count indictment handed down against two suspected gang members. You also have, obviously, Robert Long, who committed charge with killings in two different counties. But for every family who has lost someone, how do you make sure that you tell everyone that we are going to have a fair and balanced approach to investigating and prosecuting every, if you feel that they're guilty, prosecuting folks, but not just because they, some may be high profile, but for another crime that may not be high profile? The reality is most cases that this office sees, the public never hears about. Um, most of these victims are only noticed by their family and their close friends. But for me, you know, I tell people this is business and personal. I have lost someone to a homicide. 
And in my case, the victim was a family member and so was the defendant. And so I understand how important it is for all sides to see justice and to get it. And so I spend a lot of my time meeting with families who have lost a loved one. Um, my executive deputies spend a lot of time meeting with those families. And I have taken, as I said, 25 lawyers from the office and focused them solely on indicting those kind of cases so that they can be investigated and worked up properly. But we are spending the time. Um, justice ain't always swift. Sometimes it comes slowly, but we are focused on it. And certainly the loss of life is my highest priority. As it relates to those high profile cases, going back to Sequoia Turner and then Robert Long here, any idea in terms of what you can, let's start with the Robert Long and what you can reveal. You have stated you felt hate, hate crime charges were adequate here. That was not the case out in Cherokee County. You want to explain to our listeners why you, you, you felt that that was important? Um, I think it's very important. For one, I've been a proponent of us having a hate crime statute in Georgia for years. Uh, probably four or five years ago, I crossed the aisle with some Republican legislatures when they were on the cusp of getting a hate crime statute passed. I've also teamed up with Democrats to get a hate crime statute passed. I do not think that anyone should be mistreated, period. But you certainly should not be mistreated because of your race, because of your gender, and who you choose to love. And we are just seeing that too much within our community. I think it is important to send a message that this office, and more importantly, the community of Fulton County does not support that kind of behavior. And every single victim in our community, no matter if you're Asian, Hispanic, white, black, rich, poor, you all have value. Lady Justice is now actually blind what we struggle for and we are going to make sure you are protected you received criticism regarding the rayshard brooks killing you have time now to let listeners know the community know you know the role you took and and why you did not want that in your your office well i understood what the judge finally ruled on once it was put to a superior court judge is that this office had a clear conflict and when an office has a conflict, it is going to create an issue for the victims down the road and those that are charged. And so where I understand there was a lot of emotional charge around that, what I am paid to do and what I took an oath to do as an attorney is to look at facts and look at the law and see how we can appropriately go forward. Unfortunately, because of the actions of my predecessor and the facts surrounding that case, there was no way that this office was ever going to be able to prosecute that case without conflict. And so whether the problem came in the beginning, the middle or the end, it's not right to the family of Rashard Brooks, nor those charged officers to move forward in a way that would create an issue later in the case. And so I thought the best thing was what ultimately happened, which was for the attorney general to appoint another lawyer that would be free of conflict and would be able to do the job of a prosecutor, which is to look at the facts, look at the law, and make a decision. If you just join us, I'm joined by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. And I want to pick back up on something because there were some concerns that, and I think we, we might have talked about this, that some organizations, some entities, like the Police Foundation, for example, in donating to campaigns, some 
and this was out in the, in the press, that perhaps there was pressure from you from other entities related to Rashard Brooks. You want to take the time to clear that up? And I think what you're talking about is actually the police union. The police union, um, okay. Some my were apologies. concerned that the police union had donated to my campaign. Um, you know, I raised about a half a million dollars in my campaign. Collectively, the police union, I don't think, donated $5,000. Now, I don't want to sound flip because I appreciate every dime that someone invested into our campaign. But certainly the defense bar gave, you know, 50, 60, 70 times that amount of money to make sure that I was in office. I am very proud that a cross section of the community, both law enforcement and the defense bar and just everyday citizens decided to invest in this candidacy. Um, I felt absolutely no pressure from mm -hmm. the police unit union. I have not talked to anyone at the police department about my decision. I quite frankly doubt that law enforcement even understands legally what the legal conflict is. I don't even think that they understand why I took the position that I did, but th that's not what they're paid and trained to do. It's what a lawyer is trained and paid to do. And so the decision didn't have anything to do with any donation or any pressure because I felt none. You felt none. So you didn't talk to anybody, but no one reached out to you. No one sent an email. There was nothing to your knowledge where people raised opposition to how you were when you had the case on whether or not you would pursue charges against the officers. You there was you want to say without a doubt, there was no pressure from anybody. There was zero pressure from anyone. Um, the only like messaging that you're referring to is sometimes on an inbox on Facebook, I'd get random people in the community and they were so polar opposite that, um, you know, it would really be a wash. Some would say, you know, you should prosecute it to the fullest. Other would say, you know, how dare you ever charge an officer? So no, zero pressure. I want to move on to former President Donald Trump. You had said that you know, there were some concerns there. Where are, where are we with this case? I mean, you know, President, it's clear President Donald Trump then was trying to put pressure on Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to, I'm trying to be fair here, to change the election outcome to prove that there were more votes in his favor. Where are you right now? Are you still probing this? Yes, we are still probing it. It's an active investigation. It's one of those 12,000 cases in an unindicted stage. Um, within the office is certainly a case that being looked at, being investigated, people are being interviewed, things are being researched. It's where any unindicted case would be. And what would the charges be if you found something? Conspiracy? Well, I, racketeering? I, I don't know what the charges will be because we are in the midst of an investigation. What do you think and the so charges I, could be? Oh, I, I, I don't speculate. I'm, I'm trained to look at the facts and the law. Um, I know that people find that case to be interesting because mm -hmm. it was a former sitting president and that has some historic value. For me, um, it's not interesting. What will happen is my team will do an investigation till we are satisfied. We will put the facts that are learned, literally, because I'm old school, up on a wall what those facts are. We will put the statutes that we believe it, those facts could or could not touch. We will see if the elements of a crime are met. If they are, I will present a case to the grand jury. If they're not, then we won't do it. Um, if you just go back to the basics mm -hmm. and do what is right, the law will guide you. And so that's what I plan to do in that case. And that's what I plan to do in every case. 
In a, I guess you could call this a tweet, you all said, join our dynamic team. We're hiring assistant district attorneys, depending on experience. And then there was something else you had in block letters, integrity matters. Is this a case of that, perhaps with your predecessor, that that was an issue? Well, you know, it's funny. That became a theme in my campaign, is that integrity matters. Um, And it's a theme that has stuck and that the public has taken on. And I I think that in a prosecutor, it is such an important quality. The reality is this, you know, the police are held to a high standard and they should be. And the reason they should be is because they can take your liberty from you. Um, And so it is important that we as a society look at what they do and make sure that they do it in a sense that is free from bias. The prosecutor also needs to be looked at with a microscope because what we do is too important. We can um, send, take your liberty, fine you, uh, even ask for death in some cases. And so when you do that, you need to do it free of things that have nothing to do with the law and the facts being involved. And so integrity does matter. I am seriously looking for people that can come here. And just as I tell my staff, just call balls and strikes. Just let the facts and the law guide you to what's right. And if we keep doing what's right, I don't mind taking the criticism. I'm I'm here to take the criticism. I volunteered and I signed up from this role. It is an honor to sit as the first female district attorney in this county. And, you know, we're going to work a lot of hours and we are going to do this job with integrity. As we begin to wrap up nine months in, what have you learned about yourself as a leader in this department? I think I've reaffirmed some things to myself. Um, I'm tireless. Um, I would say unafraid. And I just really am here to do God's work. We are just going to do what's right. Um, If in four years that means the people choose me again, that's great. But if we do what's right for these four years and the people choose to go a different direction, I can live with that. But what I cannot live with is mistreating human beings or not doing my job in a way that my oath calls for. Have there been missteps you're willing to admit? Have there been missteps I'm willing to admit? Um, (laughs) When I first took this job, I had a conversation with Kim Fox, and I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. And she told me the only, you know, one of the mistakes that so many people take when they take over office is they don't terminate enough people. They don't let enough people go that are not with their mission. Um, I certainly came into office and got rid of a lot of people that I knew were not with this mission, but there have been some people I kept that um, proved to be, they were who I thought they were. And so, whereas maybe I should have got rid of them at day one, maybe it took 90 or 120 days and that was time wasted. Um, Other missteps, I would say no. Um, What I have learned is, I'm very frustrated with those that wanna talk about being committed to the problem of crime, but they're not committed to the problem of crime. We as a community, whether you're an elected official, a citizen that lives here or law enforcement, we've got to get committed to justice. Will you endorse anybody for mayor? In my city, the city of South Fulton, I endorse Bill Edwards, but I have a feeling you asking me about Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> you know you know what I'm asking you about. I don't have an endorsement for the Atlanta mayor's race. Why? 
Um, one, you know, I haven't had a time to talk to each of those candidates. I did have an in-depth in con conversation with Andre Dickens. He came in very early one morning, um, accommodated my schedule, and he was very interested in the gang problems. That certainly goes a long way with me. Um, I met and sat down with Antonio Brown. He also wanted to talk about some things that he thought were creative towards prosecution. I certainly have a fondness for Felicia Moore and we have had many conversations over the last few years. And so I wanna see how it plays out, you know, who gets to this runoff. I just want a mayor that is committed to public safety and puts the resources behind public safety that they need. I don't want you to talk about it. I want you to be about it. Are you in support of then the proposed training facility? I am. I think that we as a community, now I don't have any, you know, I don't know about where it's at and the location and that's appropriate for that community, but I am absolutely supportive of police getting more training. We can't talk about being mad at the police for not performing correctly and we have not given them appropriate training. So I support training not only for the police department, but for my office and other law enforcement agencies. And we need to be able to recruit here in Atlanta. We, we you know, we got a hundred percent spike in murders, but we're down 250 officers. That just doesn't make good sense. I'm also in support of my Fulton County Sheriff being able to have more cars on the street so he can patrol neighborhoods so that we can all stay safe. And I think the county commissioners need to get behind that and make sure that that is appropriately financed. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, as always, thank you for taking the time. Please don't wait another nine months to come holler at us. <laughs> I will not. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. It was a question economists and experts alike all attempted to answer last year, and that is, what will be the impact of the pandemic on economies, whether on a global scale or here in the United States? Let's go back and hear what some of the top economists and analysts had to say. Because people behave in a way which reduces economic output, they're not spending, they're staying at home. But also because the overall kind of global economic environment has been hit so hard that that has had knock on effects. And then the other point that's interesting, I think, as we go on in time is one, it depends on how successfully citizens think their governments are handling things. Usually these higher income communities are somewhat buffered from these economic shocks. But in this case, it's actually those low-income workers who are working in these high-income communities who are facing the biggest brunt of this crisis. Now we heard from Harvard University's The Opportunity Insights Economic Tracker Policy Outreach Director David Williams there. And we also heard from Zanny Minton Bettis, who's editor-in-chief of The Economist. And now we're going to turn to somebody else that we always believe knows the answers. Because this time last year, remember this, there were concerns about the virus, its effect on holiday spending, as well as holiday travel. It was a guessing game. Now, 19 months later, we're talking about how the Delta variant could affect the economy, especially here in Georgia. So joining me now, we call him the man, is Professor Rajiv Dewan, Director of Georgia State University's Economic Forecasting Center at the J. Mack Robinson College of Business. Professor Dewan, spend some time. Good to have you back on the program. Thank you for having me back. And Thank you for the nice introduction. <laughs> Let me ask you this. As an economist, do y'all are you trained to look at the emotions, the emotional state of society when you're trying to determine consumer behavior and how 
it affects uh, the economy when as it relates to something like a pandemic? Or do you all just look strictly at numbers? Do you concern yourself no, about no. Yeah. the emotions are hard to capture, but we do have a couple of tools called the consumer confidence or consumer sentiment, which give us an insight into how people will spend. But with this virus, what has happened is last year, we were not allowed to go out and spend because we did the lockdown, which was needed. And we, we didn't know this. That's why it's called the novel coronavirus. We didn't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Now we have a better idea. So now what we are seeing is that as the virus comes back, as researchers, people cut back on the activity, which requires human contact. For example, going out, travel, staying in a hotel, or even getting elective surgery. People don't realize that we spend, for every $1 of GDP, 12 cents are coming from healthcare from this kind of spending. Hmm. So whenever, if you remember last year, when we did the shutdown and hospitals were preparing for the upcoming wave, which did come, but it wasn't as bad, they had to postpone everything elective surgery, cancer treatments, everything. We are seeing something like that again will happen. It's happening to some extent because if you look at the hospitals, Mm -hmm. especially in Georgia and Alabama and Florida, six out of 10 patients in ICU are because of COVID, which means every bed occupied by the COVID is one less bed for any elective surgery and any negative outcome from that. Mm -hmm. So every time it happens, that activity gets displaced. When you look at 2020 overall, and I've heard some analysts say, you know what, in terms of, the, we'll start here globally. Now, globally, it was it was one aspect because nations, different na- nations have obviously different economies. But here in the U.S., I've heard some forecasters say, you know what, it wasn't as bad as we thought it was. Now, depending on the sector, like hospitality and restaurant, obviously, they got hit hard. But I've heard forecasters say, you know what, overall, 2020 wasn't that bad in terms of the nation's economy. Why do you respond to that? I don't think anybody would say it was a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. It was a roller coaster where I think last April, at the end of April, early May, it looked like there was no end to it on the going down. Then we hit a rock bottom. For multiple reasons, we arrested that you know decline. And then we came back out as we opened up the economy. But we still haven't recovered everything. There are some industries which are still running at like 25, 30% below their old levels. And there's some places which are running 20% above. For example, sales of jewelry and watches, a very small component of the economy, mm-hmm. of the spending we do, is running 40% higher than the pre-pandemic levels. It did fall 60% in two months, mm-hmm. recovered, and is running another 40% higher. So there are some, you know, what you call anomalies. Like, who is buying this jewelry and the watches? Who are you showing it off to? You know, you're not going out. You're not going to the office as much. I mean, only 33% of the people are back to work. And that is before the this wave came. You know, we were supposed to be back to 70, 80% in the occupancy in the office. It's not going to happen in the next three months. I actually have an email from a listener who says, Rose, ask him, then why are we in, a inflation, why are we in an inflation period? How did that happen? Ah, Our inflation. listeners are smart. 
Right, Rajiv. They, inflation smart. is a tricky thing, but I'm going to explain you something. Mm-hmm. Let's take the inflation on uh, car prices, used car prices. Mm-hmm. Okay. They usually fall during a recession and then they come back up. This time, they didn't fall that much. And what happened is when we came out of the lockdown, the demand for cars went up because people said, look, if I'm going to now live outside the city, I'm only going to go to the office once or twice a week, but I'm now in Boston, San Francisco, other areas, and I went out 40 miles, bought a home. I need an extra car now just to go to work for that one day a week or two days a week. It is nothing to do with these people who are living in the in city, did not have a car, or maybe had only one car. Now they need two or more. Hmm. So that's immediately a demand for cars that has nothing to do with economics. It has to do with people have changed their tastes and preferences. So that put a demand goes up, supply is limited, prices Mm -hmm. go up. So that explains that. That's because of the pandemic. The other thing is the hotel room prices. They dropped 40%. Mm -hmm. And they came back up as we opened up for the summer. They're not not going to keep on going up because we we cannot keep on having a summer type travel every three months. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a social calendar. That has to be followed. You know, nobody goes on a summer vacation in September, October. So it's not going to happen again. So those kind of prices will be arrested. And there are some shortages on international goods in the supply chain. And there is some inflation, definitely. And explain to our listeners, when you all at the Economic Forecasting Center, when you all are coming up with what is going to be your, your projection here, what then factors go into that in determining, you know, what the next year or, or the next, you know, in this case, because we're still in a pandemic, because there's going to be some different factors because we're still in a pandemic, as opposed to just a regular old year, correct? Well, one of the biggest factor right now from last year has been, and that's what I call it, this economic tangle is being led by the virus. Hmm. It's right now, there are other things happening too, what the Federal Reserve does, what the government does, what the people do. But Once the virus resurges, you will always see people pulling back on spending and going out and going back to the office and the other things. We have seen that. People actually even pull back on online spending when the virus surge comes back. We saw that last November, December, January. The virus surge was there. People pulled back even on online spending because they see the future prospects are not good. So hold back on spending. Very interesting, because in that clip coming into this segment that I that I played and the woman talked about also the confidence that the that the society has in its government. But you also said once public health measures arrest the surge, consumer sentiment will improve. The service sector will reignite and growth will resume. So we look to our public health officials, whether it's federal, state or local, because and then also combined with human behavior as citizens. If we can, quote, arrest this surge, then that changes everything. It can, but there is no guarantee because consumer confidence is a very, very complicated thing. People also look at what's happening to their portfolio. Hmm. You know, if everybody's into stock market, you know, I like to say everybody's gambling in Bitcoin these days, you know, especially the young ones. So people look at that thing too. People look at what we call in economics, your wealth position. So what is like your income, your paycheck, what you're earning on a regular basis? What happens to that? 
versus also what happens to your asset value. Mm -hmm. So those, look, what has the stock market done in the last 12 months? People who own stocks, gone up gangbusters. And you know what happens when that happens? Some people say, look, you know what? I got too much money in the stock market. Let me take some winnings out of the market and go invest in real estate. Mm -hmm. that, that shows you why the demand for the homes all of a sudden exploded to because people said, I can afford it. Interesting that you bring up the housing market because from what we understand now, the housing market pretty much was not negatively impacted by the so far as not being impacted by the pandemic. But you see that stabilizing at some point? Well, I would put it this way. The housing market did take it on the chin, but for only a few months mm -hmm. last year. Then, as I said, there was an exodus. People were basically saying, look, I'm a New Yorker. I got a lot of money. I live in a high-rise building. And if I stay over here, I'm going to be in trouble. So maybe I need to get out and go to a smaller town, buy a place, pennies on the dollar, and I can live. And that's what a lot of people did in the big cities. They fled. And that increased the demand for housing. And we saw that's a run up in prices. And remember, stock market feeds to the housing market and housing market again feeds into the stock market at times. So they kept on playing on each other. So I was thinking that this year, okay, if the virus is under control with the mm -hmm. vaccination and everything, that thing will take a breather. It hasn't. The virus has come back again. It has told the people who were sitting on the fence, hey, this could be a longer problem. And then, of course, at the core of this also, too, uh, Professor, is that folks have to be working. So the nation's labor, you know, the, are folks working? But not just working, are folks in those jobs? We keep hearing about, well, with the restaurant and hospitality, folks aren't going back. But how much also this does it depend, if the, depend on if the United States can continue to have, I guess we could say, a positive uptick in terms of, employment for folks because if folks ain't working they ain't making no money employment again is fluctuating number of jobs in a month is fluctuating with the virus the job growth took a breather last year after resurging when we had the wave it took a mild one again earlier part of the summer and again looks like and again it comes from all those areas which are human contact areas hospitality, restaurant, uh, you know, your delivery services and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That's where it has taken, it had the biggest drop, followed by recovery, pauses and pauses again. So what we had last month was a pause. We didn't lose it, but we had a pause in that area. And the fear is going forward, you know, October, November, mm -hmm. if this virus surge does not get mitigated by public health measures, then those industries will suffer again. Hmm. There is nothing you can do. You can't throw money at it. You can't tell me that I will go out to the restaurant to eat if I don't feel safe. Hmm. You know, you can't mandate that. So then your prediction then with this Delta variant is not to panic yet? I would say the growth is delayed 
but not diminished because this is the issue of the virus and it's going to come through the areas which require high human contact in delivery. Mm -hmm. You know, if this pandemic had happened even just 10 years ago, I don't think so you and me would be, have been able to do the Zoom call and talk to each other and do the radio interview too with the clarities that we have. If you wanted to do that, we would have to set up a million dollar studio on both ends to do it. Mm. We'll, we'll now we get it, it yeah. done with the hundred dollar software. Yeah. So technology actually helped us out this time to arrest that decline as well as let us function and do things which would have been absolutely impossible 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago could have done something. So except for the high human contact, you know, wherever the human contact is needed, there is no substitute with the technology as yet. Any other metric you're paying attention to as it relates to can the U.S., can we rebound by 2022 as we head out this year? Any I would sectors? look at the health metrics and see what the, you know, how it's doing it over there. What's the ICU bed use? I don't go just with the number of positive cases or something. Mm -hmm. So what? If I'm fully vaccinated and I got a virus and I was a positive case, but I didn't require any medication hospitalization, who cares? So I look at hospitalization, bed use, ICU capacity use. That actually tells you how bad it is. And once that gets under control, the economy starts coming back to Professor Rajiv Dewan, Director of Georgia State University's Economic Forecasting Center at the J. Mack Robinson College of Business. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for answering questions from the community. Thank you for having me, Rose. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And here's your question. Are you concerned about the nation's economy if this Delta variant doesn't get under control? Let me know. Rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.